Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, it's the Freight 360 Podcast. From freight broker sales tips to sports talk, this podcast is all about helping you grow as a freight broker. We're your hosts, Nate Cross and Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. Welcome back, everybody, for this wonderful December episode of Freight 360. It's episode 170. We've made it a long way, Ben. Uh, but hey, we've got our, as promised, our third episode with Doug Nelson of Blue Book Services. We're gonna we'll re rewelcome him back here in just a second. But if you're brand new, you've caught us at a really cool and interesting episode. Make sure to check out all the other episodes we've got in our library, either on iTunes, Spotify, our website, YouTube, wherever you want to consume the content, it's out there. Make sure to keep sharing us with your friends. Leave that review. Five stars, uh, nothing less, please. One star does not help us. Your mother always told you if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. So leave that five-star review. Um, but we've got Doug Nelson with Produce Blue Book, or with Blue Book Services back with us. Doug, how have you been the last month since we had you on before? Not bad at all. How did your, how did your uh, college football team finish out there? Uh, yeah. Go Spartans. Actually, yeah. Spartans didn't go this year. It was it was the most uh, – I can't remember a season when they looked so good on paper at the beginning and just no magic at all, didn't even make a bowl. So we'll get them next year. Yeah, well, we're heading into bowl season now. That's always, like, fun. I love watching the all the bowl games. And did you see the um, Alabama, how Nick Saban was all pissed off because, you know, they ended up number five and didn't make it to the playoffs and he was throwing a stink. I saw I so, saw the interview. Yeah. yeah, poor sport. Oh well, go try again next year. Yeah. Um, but I mean, hey, Michigan, your big rival there. I think they finished in the two spot, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. with Ohio State in there too. So yep. Big Ten representing a little bit. Yeah, it's very true. Very true. Um, in other sports news, um, Von Miller from the Buffalo Bills is out for the season. Nasty injury. We were hoping to have him back towards the end of the season and before the playoffs, but hey, he's got a big contract, so we got many years to go with him. Ben, you got anything in the uh, what's new in like golf or like the live league? Anything cool? Uh, not really. I mean, there hasn't oh, really your time cool. of year. Yeah, we're like mid. I mean, on the upside where I live, it's my time of year. It's gorgeous out here, and I'm actually getting to play golf. But there is not much outside of football in the golf world going on right now. Fair enough. Well, let's give a shout out to our friends over at DAT and we're going to talk produce. Taking the guesswork out of freight with DAT. The DAT Load Board Network is the largest on-demand freight marketplace in North America, connecting freight brokers with available capacity on any lane. Grow your business with tools that allow you to find new business partners. Plus, you can quickly and qualify and onboard new carriers. With the industry's leading freight rate data, you can make clear and confident pricing decisions. Check out the show notes for a free month of Power Express or Trucker's Edge. Absolutely. All right, cool. So we did two previous episodes with Doug. So we've covered the credit and marketing sales lead generation side of Blue Book and how all of that works. Then we went into claims and um, dispute resolution. There's a lot. I mean, we, we could have you know, probably a hundred episodes on produce and blue book and you'd still have more to learn, but we're going to try to pack as much into today as we can to, to wrap up the conversation. And this will act as a longstanding um, three-part series where anyone new into brokerage can just go back and get a, a nice little crash course on, on produce and blue book and 
how everything all works. So to be honest, I've learned a ton. I mean, our yeah. last podcast was like, I had a blast just because I'm like, so much of it was just new information that I learned. I'm really looking forward to digging into this episode. Yeah. So, um, Doug, I know you had a, a bunch of things that we, we could hit on today. And I, I want to kind of pick up our conversation where we left it off with claims in the previous episode. So, um, one of the things that Blue Book does, and I'll let you speak to it, but the trading and transportation guidelines that are offered, and it'll kind of it helps to constitute what circumstances will you know result in a breach or, or whatnot. So if, if we're in a claim situation here or a potential claim situation, talk us through Blue Book's process with determining time, temperature. How does that all come together in the, in, the, in the guidelines there to give a um, you know, here's, here's kind of the feedback from us. What does that look like? Yeah. Um, so we hold ourselves out and are a neutral third party. Um, in, when we're in the middle of, of the disputes, um, we obviously, we want to be consistent with how we're, with what we're saying. Um, and so over the year, for really throughout the country's the, the company's long history, we've published trading and transportation guidelines. We've still got both of those today, um, and the transportation guidelines are, are, are what a lot of truck brokers um, know know very well. Usually, just on a on a, they're learning by experience. They're going through. They're doing. They're doing their job. They're eventually bumping into some disputes. In the process of resolving that dispute, um, they're they're coming upon our guidelines and learning learning those sections very well. Um, you can also learn them proactively if you're if you're the type that can sit there and, and read through them and get out of, out ahead of them. Um, but that's, that's I imagine really, it's a very very beefy set of uh, <laughs> guidelines, huh? Yeah, you know it's it's probably only you know thirty pages, but you know it'd, it'd be a tough tough slog to to get through for most people. I think yeah, just because well, you have, you have a delayed it. flight during the holidays, feel free <laughs> yeah. to you know hit the hit the link in the episode notes to join Blue Book and check out those those guidelines. <laughs> so I can. Um, you know, for, for an, I tried to give you an example of 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 what's in there. You know, like a, a common dispute in produce would be how warm is too warm. So, say I I ask the the truck to carry the the load, maintain temperatures in the trailer between thirty two and thirty four. Well, does that mean thirty five degrees is a is a breach? You know, for to kind of tee up an, an easy one. Obviously not. Well, so like here, let me let me just if you'll indulge me, I'll just I'll just read it. I think you can imagine yeah. this is section six two from our guidelines. I think you can you can see the number of disputes that that could could be given some direction um, by by this you know relatively short paragraph. All right, slight deviations in transit temperature based on among other things the location and accuracy of the temperature recorder are inevitable and permissible. What constitutes a slight deviation will vary. But as a rule of thumb, temperatures within the trailer should not deviate more than four or five degrees Fahrenheit from the agreed upon transit temperature. If a temperature range is specified, any deviation will be assessed from the midpoint of the specified range. A temperature variance lasting less than 12 hours may also be categorized as a slight deviation depending on the extent of the variance, the relative perishability of the commodity in other circumstances. For example, a shipment involving multiple pickups or drops may be expected to experience temperature variance during loading and unloading. There's a lot packed into that paragraph. That's really good, though. Um, so 
and I want to remind everybody, right? Like, so with, with Blue Book, you guys aren't the law, right? But it, you are the respected benchmark, I would say, when it comes to that. Similar to the way that TIA is, they kind of set a benchmark standard for like freight brokerage and intermediaries in general. I would say you guys do that for the the fresh food and produce community. Um, but there's, yeah, there's a lot in there. That's good. I, I did not know that that midway point for a temperature range and also the four to five degrees as the guideline. That's, I got a question. Yeah. Can you give me some clarification when it says midpoint, are they talking like the median, like the mean, like in between the ranges for a period of 32 to 36, you'd say 34 is your midpoint. You can go up four or five degrees or down four or five. Right. Right. So we, we just don't want to punish somebody that if the shipper says, you know, maintain between 32 and, and 34, we don't want to start counting from 34 and in effect, in fact, punish him for not just saying 33. Yeah. yeah. So we just start counting from the from the middle of that range when we're assessing what four and five degrees is. OK, so now the other side of the of this is from temperature is the time, right? So how long, the duration of how long there's a breach. Can you talk us through how, how that's handled and what, is there, is there a paragraph on that? Or I guess, how does the time part of it work? Yeah, there's, um, it's, it's important to remember that the time part is, is, um, is a rule of thumb. So if, if it's strawberries hauled at, um, say the strawberries are supposed to be hauled at 30, 33 degrees and you look at the, and they're, they're 35 degrees for all but 10 hours of the trip. And you might be inclined to say, well, okay, no breach, only 10 hours. Well, you gotta, it's a rule of thumb. So you gotta look at, hey, if the time, if the, if the temperature, um, but during those 10 hours was 60 degrees, well, that's gonna, that's gonna be a breach anyway. But it, it gives us the 12-hour rule is helpful, for instance, if the product's lo- loaded a little warm or not in a cooled shed, and it takes some time for those temperatures to stabilize and normalize at the start, at the beginning of the trip. Um, so when you say 12-hour rule of thumb, are we saying we're not looking at the first 12 hours, or what does that no, mean? No, we're, we're saying um, it's a, it's a, temperature should be, within, should, should be within four to five degrees, but it doesn't have to, to be throughout the trip. There could be times when it drifts okay. out of there and drifts back in. But if we add it up and it's, it's more than 12 hours, then that points towards, towards a carrier breach. I got, so, more, hold on, I'm say, if you've got question. like, let's say you got four or five stops, that's accounting for the amount of time that it could raise, right? And, and, exactly. Exactly. We wouldn't, we wouldn't count that in the, okay. against the 12 hours. I, you know, there, there's some complications. It's all going to be assessed case by case. There's some complications, but if, if I'm the shipper, I'm loading the product, I'm loading the product on a truck that I know has got, multiple stops um, and, and I'm still warranting that it's going to make good arrival at destination, I shouldn't expect it to be perfect temperature the whole way. I should expect some variance. So I shouldn't be, lo- I should either refuse, I should refuse to load product that can't, that can't withstand some of that te- temperature, that normal temperature variance during those intermediate stops and pickups. Ben, what do you got? Is that 12 hours per stop or 12 hours in total for the whole trip? 12 hours in normal transit. Okay, so if they loaded in, we'll just say, you know, California at that coast, going to Jersey, the other coast, and let's say it's, you know, four stops, it's 12 hours in total over that transit, not 12 hours per stop. Like, because in my head, I'm like, okay, well, if you stop and you, you know, you had to deliver somewhere like where I'm at, where the temperature is obviously much different than where Nate's at, like the normal time to bring that temperature back down shouldn't be that long. But I guess... 
you know, again, if you've got three or four stops, does that really play into it much? Yeah. When you see it like from a practical standpoint, I guess. Right. Yeah. You shouldn't need, we're not suggesting you need 12 hours to pull it down at, at every, at every stop. The, the four to five deg- degree range, that's kind of tight. This gives them a little bit of margin. So if it's the hottest part of the day, you know, it's 110 degrees in the, in the middle of summer and it drifts, drifts out of there during the hottest, the hottest part of the day. And then it sinks back down. You know, we're, we're, we're allowing the, we're allowing the carrier some, some mm-hmm. space to, to not be perfect. I want to make a comment on that too. So I, I've had novice brokers that when they see a, a the chart from the temp recorder, they're like, it went over the degree. And I'm like, hey. but then I look at it and it's like, yeah, you're in Arizona in the middle of July at one in the afternoon and it went up a little bit. It, a reefers can be very good, but you're still impacted by the climate that you're driving through. It's going to, it's going to affect it heavily. Think about, it's like when you're driving your car in the middle of the summertime and that sun's beating down on your windshield, your air conditioning has to work harder to get you to a certain temperature. Right. I mean, so I think I, I want to just make a point on that, that the reefer is not meant to keep your product at the exact same temperature consistently the entire other, the entire time. There's variance in that. And the big part of that is going to be the external environment and the temperature outside. So it makes a lot of sense. And it's, well, I mean, living down here, I noticed that, right? Like I, my car could be 72 degrees inside in the shade. Right. But if you're driving down the highway and you have a dark shirt on, like you're literally sweating, right? Like the car feels like it's 72, but like to your point, it's very, very different based on where you're at and when you are, where you are. Yep. Exactly. And I would say the same probably goes for a temperature controlled unit that's keeping something warm and they go through a very, very cold area, right? You'd probably see deviation on that side. Sure. Yeah, we do. Um, and, and, you know, and I, a, a lot of times you, we've also got a question, um, the, the adequacy of the, of the trailer's insulation too. If you, if you can really see that every time it's two in the afternoon, the temperatures are, are rising above this four to five degrees. At some point you start to say, Hey, is this a new trailer? Is this a properly insulated trailer? So we're not, we're definitely not using, using, um, ambient air temperature as the, as a get out of jail free car. Sure. But, but we are, we're trying to allow for some practicality there and really, we're we're getting the, that rule of thumb is derived from from PACA precedent um, because b- between produce vendors, the USDA has been resolving disputes like this for for generations. Where I, if I'm the seller, I'm selling to you as as the buyer. I'm I'm only warranting that my product's going to hold up to to that contract destination if the the, the carrier that you hire uh, is going to maintain normal transportation conditions. So the USDA has been pulled into disputes very similar to this um, between vendors, not with carriers. They don't have jurisdiction there, um, but they've had been been through these kind of disputes for for a long time and actually um, issued administrative law rulings. Um, and so that's where we we drive the four to five and the twelve hour rule. And in fact, if you can, those red books behind me, and there's another whole roll of them there. Those are that's pack a precedent decision dating back. Uh, literally to, to the to the thirties. Yeah, so, so like, your office looks okay. like looks like a, you're a lawyer and you've got all your, your books from law school. Yeah. <laughs> well, for everyone out there, um, PACA. I mean, I looked it up when we were talking about this before we jumped on air. But why don't you explain just how long that's been out and what exactly the Perishable Agriculture and Commodities Act is? Sure. Yeah, it's it's um a ni- it was from the 1930s, um, and it's really to protect um, the growers growers to make sure that they get paid all the way up through the. Uh, 
through the supply chain. And part of the um, part of that statute allowed the USDA to um, to uh, um, to decide disputes uh, between produce vendors. So they don't have to take mm-hmm. each other to court. They can take each other to, to PACA. And, and, and what that's what that's done is created these volumes of, of books and decisions, which we, we can then pull from and say, look, the USDA has always said that, uh, you know, if temperatures drift over 40 degrees for strawberries, that's a breach. So for laymen out there, this is kind of like its own little like legal system that's just for produce where disputes get resolved and then they get written into literal volumes that can be referenced later as precedents. Correct. Correct. Yeah, it's called, cool. it's, called, it's called administrative law. And you mm-hmm. can see that in other areas like state law might have like, a, you know, employment discrimination and they'll have a whole body of law that's written not by the courts, but by the administrative law. I, and I probably shouldn't even go there, but but PAC is the one I'm, I'm familiar with and that's the most relevant here. Nice. Very cool. So one of the other things on PACA would be salvage value. So what does, you know, what does PACA say around that? Or I guess how... Talk us through if if there's a let's say a load has uh, part of the produce is I don't know it's spoiled or whatnot. So how, how do we look at um, establishing salvage value? What happens with it? Talk us through that process. Yeah, you know, similar to um, to what I'm saying with with uh, assessing the the temp. Now, how warm is too warm in transit? There's a whole issue that the PACA precedent decisions have addressed that are relevant to truck brokers as far as what's the uh, what's the salvage value of defective produce. If the produce is in good good condition, well, that's easy. It's a commodity. You can go to the USDA's market news and say it's worth you know thirty dollars a box or whatever the case may be. But if it's defective, now how do you how do you figure out what what the price is or what what the value of that is? And PACA precedent is um, you know makes it clear how you how you determine that. And we've we've kind of we've taken that and, and put that into our in our transportation guidelines. Um, but essentially, it's you get a, a time you take you combine a, a timely USDA inspection that quantifies the percentage of defects, and you take mm-hmm. an, a detailed account of sale that shows what what each of those boxes were sold for, and mm-hmm. and if they match up, if if it shows a, a, a what's called a prompt and proper resale, essentially a reasonable good faith effort to resell the product based on its condition, based on market conditions at the time. Um, if you've properly accounted for it with this account of sale, then then that wholesaler that that provided the salvage return is going to get the benefit of the doubt. So that's going to be so that's going to be used to establish that hey, this product with twenty percent defects um, was worth uh, fifteen dollars a box. And then you, as the truck broker, if you if you're taking a claim, if you're putting a claim against the underlying carrier or the underlying carrier's insurance, you can say, look, the, this the salvage was fifteen. And, and, and you know, should have been worth thirty. Therefore, I, I've got a, a claim for fifteen dollars a box. Okay, and and I've got documentation to support that. That question. makes a lot of sense. I have go a ahead, question, and I don't want to go too far down the the timeline. But then, who's responsible? I guess the does it have to go to the receiver, the person who was originally being delivered to, or can it, or does it sometimes go to somewhere completely different? Like if yeah. I'm receiving the product and I'm like, hey, you know, just like in that example, right? Hey, the salvage value is this, but I don't want any of it. Like I just want it. I don't want any of this in my warehouse because some of it was claimed and I don't want to take the risk. Does that happen? Is that 
Or is it just a clean, dry, they've got to take it if it's not been claimed by the USDA inspection? Yeah, it's totally up to the receiver. They could okay. receive it, essentially receive it under protest. They don't have to say I'm receiving under protest, but that's, that's what we would call it. Receive mm-hmm. under protest, and then they would have to provide the USDA and the accounting to, to establish what, what, the, what the value of the defective produce was. Or they could reject it, and then you as the broker say, okay, uh, truck instead this this law has been rejected you take it to this area wholesaler who will salvage it and the area wholesaler then is is going to be expected to provide you uh, the usda if it hasn't already been provided and the detailed accounting the danger is that the truck broker j- just accepts whatever that that salvaging wholesaler um, whatever return that they that they provide and and say it's a one dollar a box instead of fifteen dollars a box tries to put that whole claim against the underlying carrier the underlying carrier says hey wait a second these damages aren't aren't proven and you've already agreed to it so now you're the one that's stuck for this guy's failure to document mm-hmm. damages so again and I just I want to reiterate what you just said so I go to deliver a load twenty five percent of it's no good. Um, USDA inspection says, hey, the value should be 15. Um, originally, it was 30. The claim could be $15. Now, the receiver says, I'm rejecting and I don't want any of it. So the broker then sends the truck to a wholesaler locally. Now, that wholesaler has the right to say, I'll give you a dollar, $2 a box for it because, again, they didn't expect it. It just showed up. And then if the broker just says, hey, just take whatever we can get, then the whole claim, the original $30 minus whatever that $1 or $2, so like $28 or $29 becomes the claim value that gets applied against the carrier, correct? Right. And the car- under that, if that's the way it worked, and that's how it would work, that's what would happen. And the carrier very likely, or the carrier's insurer is going to argue back and say, wait a second, how do you, this purchase was worth a lot more than $1. How are you establishing it was only worth $1? And the way you do that, the truck broker doesn't have to get in there. This is very important to, to know. The truck broker doesn't have to get in there and try to sell it to the, to the salvaging wholesaler. The, the way this, the salvaging wholesalers will handle it, they'll handle it for your account. So they'll sell it on consignment, essentially, sell it for the best price they can, fully account for it, take a 15% commission, uh, deduct, deduct their um, USDA inspection fees, and then, and then send you the return. And then that becomes the salvage return that you use to, to calculate your damages. Well, I mean, they almost, they're not, if you, yeah, when, so when they, sh- when the wholesaler receives this pot, they're not like, I didn't ask for this. They're like, well, we make money off of this kind of stuff. So we, we want it to come in, basically. Um, exactly. Gotcha. And so, I, commission for some. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That fifteen is that fifteen percent standardized, or is that just kind of an average it's negotiable? But that's the customary. Okay. Gotcha. So I've had situations where, and the, the specific commodity was mushroom. Where if the mushrooms were rejected, they would just say, "Hey, go. We're not going to receive them. Take them over and drop them off at the local food bank." How would a situation like that? I don't. Ha- I know. I didn't give you a ton of details on it, but. What would something like that look at as far as determining the loss on that? Yeah, I'd be careful with, I mean, taking to the food bank is almost like dumping it from the, from the claim perspective. That was the other one I was going to bring up too. It's like, hey, go dump it, right? So yeah. what are, I guess, well, let's talk about that. What's cautionary about it and how would, uh, how would that play through? I would I would want to I would want to get a USDA inspected even if you're the one calling for it um, before you you simply donate it. Um, if you're going to donate it, um, I would I would want to get the carriers sign off on that if they agree. Yeah, it's got no commercial value, and you know where you know it's before a long weekend. Let's so essentially it's got there's no salvage value we're going to obtain here. Let's just donate it. Um, 
but I, I'd be careful with with that. That's yeah. If you don't have a USDA and you don't have a detailed account of sale, um, I don't. The the truck broker shouldn't shouldn't be committing to anything. I would say. That's good, wise so, words right there. So, question though, just to play that one all the way through, if that does happen, how does that kind of bite the carrier and the broker in the long run? Because you have no established value for anything that was rejected. So, I guess the whole claim then falls on the the carrier. Then the carrier is going to what come back later and fight with the broker about directing the carrier to not get any salvage value at the end of the day, I'm assuming. Right. Well, the, the care, the broker in that situation would have the, would have the, the, obli- the obligation to take reasonable steps to mitigate losses. So you as the broker would want to be doing everything you can to say, I took all reasonable steps to mitigate losses here. Um, I, you know, I called for a USDA. I called everyone in the Detroit area. If that's where it is, nobody would take it because it was before the long weekend. I further, I sent this email to the, to the, the, my carrier's dispatch, um, that said, Hey, I'm having this difficulty. If you can't tell me, uh, you know, I haven't found a home for it. Can you find a home for it? If not, in the next three hours, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and send it to a, to a food bank. So you're doing everything you can to show you acted reasonably. Um, that you were doing everything you could to mitigate losses so that they can't so that the carrier that you're going to be putting the claim against can't can't come back and say no you failed to take reasonable steps to mitigate losses you're going to say no um, you created the situation by your breach and i did everything i kind of could to, to mitigate it and, it and it didn't work out now you don't have to be perfect you don't you just i mean it may may come out that hey you're just taking it to toledo there was a guy that could have sold but but you can't be second guessed like that as long as your your efforts were reasonable and in good faith. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that's good stuff. So one of the things when it comes to product getting rejected or um, what whatever status at the receiver is, you know, we talked about this offline before is sort of how you annotate things on the delivery receipt or POD, bill of lading or whatnot. Can you talk us through some of the the, I guess the verbiage or how, what should be written on the, I guess the, the proof of delivery for if it's accepted clean and in good status versus, you know, we, we expect a claim on, uh, on this load. What, what does that look like? Yeah. We, we always recommend that a receiver in that situation is, is being specific. Um, they're, they're, they're saying 10 boxes missing, portable recorder missing. Uh, two pallets tipped and need to be repacked. Um, we, we think there should be specificity there because that gives the carrier, um, it gives them an opportunity to say, hey, wait a second, none of these pallets were, were tipped, you know, right while they're still there on site or, yep. you know, 10 boxes were missing. Well, what do you mean 10 boxes were, were missing? Right there were on, or they're on site and the carrier's got an opportunity to investigate. Um, you can imagine if you say, if a, if a receiving personnel says, you know, just stamps it's subject to count, and then two days later says 10 boxes were missing, um, then, you know, who, who knows what happened to those 10 boxes? Uh, nobody, nobody really knows, even if the receiver's acting like they know, they don't know that, you know, they don't have somebody else in their warehouse that didn't misplace their tape. Could have been stolen. Someone was eating them on their break. We have no idea. Yeah. Nobody knows. So that brings up a a point here that I want to hit on is that the the bill of lading acts as a legally binding document, right? And that if if you're hauling a temperature controlled load and there's a dispute or there's, let's say that there's the BOL has one temperature or temperature range listed on it, an email that was sent by the broker has another one, 
versus a phone call where a, a different one was said. It's yeah. a bill of lading that's the actual binding document, right? Or is there, how, how do you handle a dispute if they're like, hey, BOL says this, but they told me this on the phone? Yeah, see, our what, what we say in, in our guidelines is it's actually, um, because, you, you know, the, the bill of lading is, is confusing and it, it's, a, it's a funny document wearing many hats because if you think about it, if it's back in the old days and you're working with a railroad and you're what you want to ship your cattle across the country on the railroad, you're getting you're turning over your cattle. I don't know why I pick that as the what's the cargo, but in they're giving you right there the the bill of lading. So you're dealing directly with the carrier there. That's not the that's not the case when 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 a produce uh, a truck that hauls produce is picking up at a shipper. They're not directly contracting between one another. So to say that the, the bill of lading is the contract of carriage to me has always been, you know, eh, sometimes um, it's, it's definitely legally binding um, as a receipt would be like, you know, the carrier picked up this many loads at this temperature, if that's what the carrier signed for. Um, but we've actually said in our guidelines that um, it, it, the, the first step, if, if uh, let's say the truck worker hires the, the carrier and says, haul this, it says it's mixed commodity. So it made, so the temperature is kind of questionable. And let's say the broker says 36. Well, then you go to the, pick up the first commodity and it says th- he wants it at 32. Well, what do you, what do you do now? Well, we've said the, the party that hired the, the transportation is the one that, that, I mean, first we said carrier, get on the phone and work this out before you leave, sure. leave the yeah. doctor. But if that doesn't happen for some reason, it's really the, the party that hired the carrier. It's their transportation service. Um, they're the ones that would take precedent over over the bill of lighting. And so in could, our case, us as the truck broker or the shipper who used us? Well, I mean, if, if the, let's say the shipper, your customer, not say the word shipper is always confusing for a produce guy because – the, the shipper is the one that that my customer. That's okay. yeah, well, the broker's customer. All right. So your the problem is your customer might might have let's say you got three drops and every bill of lading one's going to say thirty two, one's going to say thirty six, one's going to say forty one if it's a mixed load and it's bell peppers or something like that. So so the, so there you know it makes it makes a lot of sense for the for the carrier to look to the party that hired it. Um, we the way we we look at it and what it says in our guidelines is it would be your job as a broker to find out from your customer what temperature they want this stuff hauled at and to instruct your carrier to do the same okay. because the, the shipper it's a, it's fob most of the time so that that produce shipper puts it on the on the truck i mean really they're done they you could if you want to cook it on the truck and make soup out of it by the time you get to destination you know that's your your business it's it's your customer's product at that point once it goes on a truck in fob terms Okay, that's that's a good rule of thumb then. So, make sure as us as brokers, um, when in doubt, do take the extra step to make sure that we understand what it's our customer's expectation is. So, well, here's okay. one of the, I mean, a good practice or procedure is, and I've done some of this, and it's been a long time, but we would always make sure, just as redundancy, to ask the the customer, the one we were dealing with as a broker, to verify in writing what the temperature was, especially if the loads were changing. If it was the same, you know, loads. Not maybe, but, you know, anytime it was a new commodity or something we were picking up from somewhere, it was, hey, just verify one more time in writing what the temperature needs to be. Because, again, there were a lot of instances I remember where, again, to this whole conversation, the carrier's calling in, well, the BOL says this, the guy at the dock says this, and you told me this. What is the number, right? And it's like, well, okay, go back to the source, get it verified, get it verified in writing, then it's at least cover your, you know, CYA. Yep. Yep. 
So, I mean, we've gone through a, a lot of stuff in this three-part series, and I wanted to to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the new hire academy. So, um, this is something that if you're a member of Blue Book, you have it's included. You have access to it. But talk us through. So, someone that's out there that either is interested in joining Blue Book or they're already a member of Blue Book, what is in this new hire academy, and how can they use it for their team as far as educational purposes for somebody? Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's just five um, it's five courses. They're they're really they're like twenty minutes on average, probably. Um, one of them will take you through understanding Blue Book ratings, so you can get on there and figure out who you you know who their most desirable customers might be from a credit perspective. Um, and uh, Bill Bill Zentner next door to me here um, does does a great job of just taking you through the the, the basics and, and really understanding how those ratings are derived and how to use them as um, as a credit extender. Um, there's also there's a section on our uh, transportation guidelines, which it's a little longer. It's like 30 minutes, but that that takes you takes you through uh, the, the the highlights. There's one for um, for on the pack of trust, which wouldn't apply to a truck broker so much. There's one on trading customers, customs and rules. So that's between vendors. And if you hear a lot about good arrival guidelines and you want to just understand what that is, not directly applicable to to, to transportation. Um, but but still, if you're doing a lot of produce, you may want to better understand that. Um, there's a, so there, that's, that'd be the trading guidelines. And then there's a sales, sales 101 geared to, more towards produce, but there's some good things, uh, good things in there. So one of the things I want to hit on with that is that produce has, in my experience, produce tends to be the commodity. And I know it's a generalized commodity. There's a lot of different types of produce, but it's, it's the, it's the group of commodities that tend to lead to the highest number of claims for the brokers that are not knowledgeable on, you know, everything we've been talking about on here. And I think that's that new hire Academy and those, those lessons and those videos are probably a good way to prevent mistakes. I mean, Ben, we've seen it with other commodities too. You get people that get involved in heavy haul and oversized and they don't know permits or they don't, you know, people get involved in cross border stuff or expedite stuff. And they don't, they, or even port operations. They don't know that drivers can't get into a, a certain, you know, past a certain gate. So you can prevent so many issues if you just educate your yourself and your team properly. Ben, you always say, you don't know what you don't know. And we're telling you right now that this, when it comes to fresh fruit and produce, Blue Book is giving you, they're pointing you in the right direction. So I'm a huge advocate you know. of this. I mean, I can't say that more. I mean, no matter what it is, right? Anything we learn new, you're going to have to do it the first time, right? So anything you can learn prior to starting, I think is a huge advantage. It's a huge advantage, not only just in, you know, mitigating risks and then hopefully eliminating issues, but also I think you just alluded to this, like competitively, right? Understanding the things the way your customer does is extremely valuable. It's extremely valuable in the sales process. It is in servicing them and operationally and mitigating your carrier's risks and managing the entire process. So I think any of these things that you can do to learn these things as you're getting into them or as you're just starting, or even if you've already been in it a while, brushing up on these things. I mean, I think these are huge advantages that people should take. Well, yeah, I mean, you'll be, you brought up, even if you've been doing it for a while to, to kind of sharpen up. I, I've seen too many times people were trained and learned to do stuff the wrong way and they just continue to do it that way. And then, you know, we come across them. We're like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not how what's, you do it. So what's the, you, don't have to, you don't have to get busted or caught doing it the wrong way to, you know, to still be doing it the wrong way. One of the most dangerous things in all of business is we've always done it this way, right? Oh, we've always done it this way, right? <laughs> 
Uh, well, good stuff. Um, well, we got a good Q&A session here. But first, a shout out to our friends over at Lean Solutions Group. Lean is the industry leader in nearshore staffing solutions with offices in South America, including freight broker back office operations, accounting, tech development, business development, marketing, customer service, and many other positions. To learn more about the vast solutions that Lean has to offer your freight brokerage or agency, visit them at www.leangroup.com. All right, so our first question today, speaking of permits and oversize, how do I figure out what permits are needed for illegal loads? And when I use the phrase illegal, it doesn't mean you're not allowed to haul them. It just means that they're not standard to what the Department of Transportation has in place for things like um, your dimensions of how tall or wide something can be, how heavy in total gross weight or per axle. So if you're going to be going over the standard legal limitations, you have to apply for permits, sometimes escort vehicles, all kinds of stuff with some of this heavy haul. Um, There are services that can do this for you. But I think one of the easiest ways to do this is to talk to a solid carrier that hauls that they have the equipment to haul what you need hauled they've done this before they will be able to tell you through their references and their experience exactly what permits need to happen or what states require what and all that good stuff uh ben any other source on that you could no and same thing whether it's you know oversized loads or anything out of standard i revert right to the carriers i might look for the bigger carriers at first to call them and to just get their thoughts on it see if they'll run a quote ask them what are the things i need to be aware of what do we need what do we've got to quote out and then i usually shop that quote to a bunch of other carriers and then go with one that has you know decent service and the lower end of the price but you got to start somewhere and going to the people that do this all day long is your best your your best resource Next question, how do I expand my business beyond just brokerage? Um, so I was thinking about this one when I when I read it and I added it in here. And I was like, why would you like why would you want to add on? Then I thought to myself, trucks, you know, that that's probably probably the one if you want to, if it makes sense to your business, one way you could probably add value is if you have a customer that has a certain need, like maybe it's drop trailers or they have dedicated regional lanes that you want to commit to, you could always introduce assets to your company. And again, you're not acting as a broker when you have assets. That would be you're acting as an asset-based carry at that point. But if you want to expand your company beyond just a, a licensed freight brokerage, um, I would say you could do assets or add assets. And some people even do warehousing. They might have some storage space for cross dock or um, short time, short term storage, things like that. Have you had work with anyone, Ben, that has done anything in addition to brokerage? And what you know, what kind of stuff would you say to answer this one? I'll use the term brokerage loosely because I've seen truck brokerages expand to what you just said, trailers, um, chassis. I've seen them expand into warehousing. I've also seen truck brokers or freight brokers expand into NVOCC, non-vessel and common carrier to do overseas freight, international. And I've also worked with some of our clients that have gone on to do international air as indirect air carriers and things. So they have, but, and I had this, actually had this conversation with someone yesterday and somebody asked what my thoughts were. And I said, look, to be honest, like there's so much, I guess, potential in the truck side that I feel like you need a very, very good reason to want to add the other services. 
because you're going to have to learn everything you need to learn about this. And there are so many nuances that are different when each of those modes that to go and build out the infrastructure and then to go get the customers, it's just a whole lot of lift to get you because the margins aren't that different than they are in truck, right? Yeah, they're overseas. You got some bigger numbers, whether you're, you know, air or ocean. But at the end of the day, if there's not a really good reason to do it, I would stick with what you're good at, right? The other old saying is, right? Like if you're going to be good, be very deep and very narrow in what you're good at, not super yeah. wide and super shallow. I agree. Freight forwarding is another one too. I had a guy yeah. that he he basically had an agency as a freight broker and as a freight forwarder with a different company. And it, it actually worked very well for his customers, domestic and international business. So um, last question, how can I report a double broker? I think I brought this one up before, but there I'm adding a link to the show notes. There is an FMCSA fraud website where you can report double broker, illegal brokering activities, illegal dispatching services, all that stuff. Anything that's governed by or, uh, umbrella covered by the uh, Department of Transportation or F- an FMCSA, there is that link. It's the Broker and Carrier Fraud and Identity Theft um, page. And there, there's links in there. So check out the show notes and you'll be able to see that web page. Um, but I, if I remember correctly, my stats when I went to DC a couple months ago and we talked to Congress, um, 80,000 year-to-date reports as of September and zero were investigated, I think was the number I got. So good. I mean, the website's there. I don't know what you can do with it. I will add, think about all these third-party vetting tools that you use for vetting carriers. When it, Whether it's um, you like your My Carrier Packets, uh, SureAssist, RMIS, Highway, any of these vetting and onboarding sites for carriers typically have their own um, vetting or reporting comment section type of stuff for carriers and check those out. Like DAT, you can, you can leave a review and it'll show up on the carrier, uh, in the carrier directory. Um, as well as if you just look at a, um, a carrier on a posting, you'll get like their, how many stars out of five are they rated? And you can click on it and go see the reviews. But that's what I would do. Um, at the end of the day, if you're dealing with hundreds of double brokers, how many, how much time are you going to really spend reporting all of them? It's just not realistic. So good stuff. Doug, it was a pleasure. Three episodes, a lot of great content and giving it, we're giving it to our audience for free. That's the best part about this is people, we got this, this great, great library of content. And now we've got a three-part series on produce. So we appreciate you coming on. What, uh, anything fun and exciting coming down the pipeline for Blue Book? Yeah, you know, I think I think in the next uh, in the next couple of years, you're going to see some um, some good things coming from Blue Book. I'm not really at liberty to uh, you know say more than that, but you can tell you I had to kill all of you listening. Right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that's we're, awesome. We, we've got a long, proud history, and I, I think we're we're getting better as a company. So I have a, I do have a a question in closing for you. Um, I have had people ask me when they're new if produce is the type of commodity that, that they should get started off with as a truck broker, as a freight broker, do you have any, do you have any thoughts on um, discouraging that or encouraging that? Or does it make a difference if someone's new to brokerage versus if they've been doing it for 20 years? Um, is it hard to learn and understand how the, how the commodities work? What do you think? You know, I, I wouldn't have a basis for judging it against like hazardous materials or some of the other, you know, crazy stuff you guys get involved with. But 
produce is, people will say it's an industry of industries. So hauling one commodity might be a little bit different than hauling another commodity. The, the crazy fluctuations in supply and pricing. Um, I think, you know, produce is kind of a wild ride. So, um, you know, if, you, if you're looking for steady and calm um, and, and not a lot of stress, um, that, you know, I th- it, it seems to me that produce would be more on the wild rides yeah. end of the spectrum. Yeah, I would say, and uh, my take on it was always, it's almost, I'm almost going to echo what you said, is if you want predictable and sort of like that vanilla boring, it's not going to be produce. That's going to be like your lumber or your steel. If you want, hey, I got to figure out where it's coming from at what time of year and how the entire market shifts based on when stuff goes into harvest and you're solving true problems. Uh, yeah, produce is, is absolutely a good way, good place to go. Ben, what's your take on that? I'm curious. If you sit like I've had the opportunity to see what the margins look like in our industry, in the larger companies, and they're just so much higher than almost any other commodity is the first thing. But they're also so much higher for all the reasons we talked about. The things that you need to do, like in this episode, the responsibilities, if there is a claim and doing, you know, what you need to do, you know, what is reasonably expected, right? Like that is expected in that industry. So all of those things, especially the ups and the downs, are why there are fatter margins. But with everything else, more risk, more return. So I think if you are young and hungry and you want to go make some, you know, some decent amount of money and you have no qualms about working hard, I think it's a great industry to be in. Um, I don't think it's for everybody for that very reason, but I do think it's a huge opportunity for a lot of people out there, especially over the next year and especially over people looking at their books of business that aren't necessarily growing as quick as they were during the pandemic. This is a great opportunity to go get some new customers and to learn a new industry. Yeah. And I think, um, so again, for Produce Blue Book, you can go to producebluebook.com forward slash join dash today. That's how you can learn more about signing up. But there is the uh, is it the know your commodity tool that's on there, Doug? Mm-hmm. That's the free one, right? Yep. And there's a lot of really cool stuff in there. I was actually, uh, I was helping somebody with, I think it was watermelons last week and they're trying to figure out what their, like their season with their customer ended at a certain time. And they're like, well, I'm like, why don't you go prospect watermelon in other areas that it's shipping earlier? Uh, or, you know, at a different time of year to kind of fill those gaps. And we're, you know, went through there and we're able to see, based on certain states or regions when, you know, when that produce is available. So, and then you could do your, you know, backwards math on when you got to start prospecting those, those uh, customers as a, as a freight broker and good stuff. So yeah, definitely check them out. Producebluebook.com. Any, uh, any final thoughts, Doug, that you want to share with our audience? Not really. I appreciate, uh, you know, what you guys do. I feel like I've learned a lot about brokering just being on these these shows. So you guys got a great, uh, great thing going, I think. Awesome. Ben, what do you got for us? Whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And until next time, go Bills. That wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Check out the show notes for links to anything that we've referenced on this episode. And make sure to visit us online at Freight360.net to see our entire library of episodes, videos, blogs, and more. And make sure to check us out on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel for daily and weekly tips and content. If you'd like your question answered on the show, fill out the Contact Us form on our site and we'll see you next week.